We love you, Lord. I thank you so much for the Iron Show and for my friends, Johnny and Rick, Lord. Father, I thank you. I love you, Lord. I love you so much, Jesus. Or rather, about one of the books that we recommend for every scholar of eschatology, anyone who's interested in understanding the prophetic timeline of the end of days. In December of 2005, we spoke to researcher and author Peter Goodgame about his book, Red Moon Rising. That same statistic, the last time it has been that high, was back in 1929. And I don't think that's a coincidence. Uh Uh-oh. The last time that happened was right on the eve of the Great Depression. We should just pass a law that you can't have a savings in excess of a certain amount. And if you do, you have a certain amount of time to go out and spend it. The whole rise of conservatism and the conservative ideology has really kind of convinced, um, like, middle America that that. Uh, work, workers' unions are socialistic and communistic in nature, oh, and oh. that uh, you know it, it really has stirred up kind of anti-union uh, kind of uh, feelings all across the land. You know, and the other thing that they that they do, like right-wing talk radio, it incites. Um, like the middle class to fight among itself and to blame other members of the middle class and, uh, you know, the, the poor and the desperate and the illegal aliens. And, and, uh, and they're always, and anytime someone talks about, you know, the rich versus poor thing, you're always accused of inciting class warfare, but, but, uh, right wing ideology incites warfare in the sense that, um, it pits neighbors against each other. Hello, world. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Hello, Iron Show Land. Yeah. Are you crazies that, that like to listen to Johnny? <laughs> Are you unique people, peculiar, strange people? What's up? What's up? I would like to give a shout out uh, to a few people. Uh, of course, Doctor Future, Tom Doctor Bionic. Future. What's up? Busy boy, busy boy, Tom Bionic. Love you, man. If there's any sort of worldly corruption in in any ideology. It's going to fail. And so uh, that's what I've been doing recently is digging back deeper into economics and trying to look at, at uh, you know, this, the, this big, uh, well, like what's going on nationally uh, with President Obama and, what, and his methods for uh, saving the economy or whatever and and honestly, I think right now both sides are so tied up with the, the rich and powerful and with Wall Street that uh, 
that really I think that nobody believes the system can be saved and nobody's even trying to save the system. I think it's all these different uh, parties that are working for their own self-interest that are simply trying to grab into the pile as much as they can for themselves before it all blows up. That's the way I see it. Okay, so, I don't like that at all. I don't either. But I think that's what's happening. That is not an encouraging word, Pete. <laughs> I think, yeah. I think so. you need to hang out with Joel Osteen for a spell. <laughs> hey, everything's all right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that is pretty scary, and it sure seems like that. I mean, uh, you know, you, you really, it really looks like that. It looks like everybody's making their last grab. And then, uh, especially when, especially, you know when it first hit me is when President Bush bought all that acreage down in South America. Oh, I didn't know about that. Oh, man, just before he left office, he bought this huge. Oh, okay, I think I might remember that. Big ranch. Yeah, the, it's like the, the Rockefellers, which the Bushes are very closely connected to, the Rockefellers have always had huge holdings in South America. And they've looked at the Rockefellers themselves have looked at South America as their own little uh, fiefdom, you know. And they've they've had problems with these uh, with the left wing backlash with people like uh, what's his name Chavez, and then um, then the Brazilian uh, government got taken over by kind of a left wing guy. And in Bolivia, there was a big left wing backlash, and and even Argentina. But yet they still have a huge huge presence in South America. So yeah, Bush Bush will feel right at home next to his neighbors, the Rockefellers. Yeah, and Bush's daddy, his buddies, uh, B- Bush's daddy's, Bush's grandpa, buddies with the Nazis. Sure. We all know yeah. about that, and yeah. we all know where the Nazis went, don't we? Yeah. South America. Yeah. That that bothers me. There's. I hope there's not a. I hope there's not a connection there. I hope that's just me rambling. <laughs> you know. I mean, so people can draw connections too quick. Like, it's not all what it's not all as horrible as it seems yet. Maybe it's worse. Maybe it's actually worse than what we think. Yeah. But um, I, getting back to what you're saying, you're talking about capitalism. Um, what uh, What do you think? What do you, like? Okay, like a lot of people say that um, you can um, draw a lot of biblical foundation for capitalism from the Bible, from the way God talks about well like the for the parable of the talents for one thing yeah uh yeah, it's it's clear that that uh that god condones you know investment investing and and taking a you know gaining on an investment profiting off of an investment and he condones buying and selling of course and and uh the market how the market works you know that's all Absolutely correct, but I just uh, I just think the problem comes when we when we believe that uh, when we when we put some sort of mystical capability to the to the free market and say that uh, free markets work best left alone and free markets find a natural equilibrium and uh-huh. free markets free markets distribute wealth and free markets encourage competition and free markets do this and free markets do that when it's clear just common sense wise that uh, you know free markets left to themselves they don't encourage competition you know free markets uh, encourage big piles of capital becoming bi- bigger that's what they do that's what they you do know, John, John D Rockefeller was 
was a, you know, a, a typical capitalist. He had a big pile of capital, and he invested it to make bigger and bigger piles. Well, what did he say about competition? He said competition is a sin. And he specialized in mergers and acquisitions. So the free market itself does not – the free market works against competition. And also the free market works against um, spreading the wealth. You know, free markets don't spread the wealth. Without that's why, some kind of regulation. There. Yeah, without without regulation and, and oversight, absolutely. And, uh, you know, if, uh, if you look at uh, – in the Bible – um, it's like the Lord understood that because He set up certain, um, He set up a system with the Israelites, and uh, He set up the you know the year of Jubilee when all debts are forgiven. So it's like there was a reset button every fifty years. Yes, yes. And I was hoping what, you would mention that. That's what that's what capitalism needs. <laughs> it needs a reset button every fifty years. Okay. That's right. God knew what He was doing when He set up Jubilee. Come on, and um. Uh, we're two thousand years past due for one. Yeah, well, or more. let me just let me just uh, point out some of these uh, left wing statistics that I came up with. Um, <laughs> like right. for instance, for instance, talking about um, you know with capitalism, there's this mythology that the wealth is spread through the free market system. This is, that's the best way to spread the wealth and make sure that that, that capitalism itself uplifts the poor and it's the best way to uplift the poor and bring everybody uh, make everybody be able to be to contribute to society to to become owners of property and that kind of thing but but that's not how it works um, for instance now since um, over the last 30 years you know there was the there was the Reagan revolution where there was a huge uh, a shift cons- uh, towards conservative the conservative view of economics. Um, which is actually a, the liberal, the classical liberal view of economics, basically. But uh, uh, that's a whole different uh, argument. But in those, in that thirty years, we can just show that the rich have gotten richer and the poor have gotten poorer. Okay, because at the beginning, I think it's I think it's back in '79 or something like that. Um, the top one percent of households in America controlled owned. I think it was like 9% of the wealth of the nation, okay? With the top 1% controlled 9%. Now, um, 30 years later, 2009, or maybe it was taken in 2007, whatever the statistics come from. But just recently, um, the top 1% control, own, possess, I think it was 23 to 25% of the wealth. So what we have is the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer. And also the gap between the poorest and the richest has just exponentially exploded. Oh, okay? corporate CEOs. Their salary. Oh. Yeah, yeah. And the, now, now the reason that that happens is because um, free market capitalism is unstable because it breeds uncertainty. It's just, it's all about, you know, everybody wants to make a quick buck. So if you have a corporation that has a product that sells – they're going to push, push, push that, and they're going to make as much money as they can. And corporations themselves, you know, the capitalism is—it's like a dichotomy there. Their capitalism is at odds with labor because labor they perceive as a cost. Yet labor is also you and me. You know, consumers are also laborers. You know, we're the working class. We're the ones that we're expected to buy everything that they produce. 
So it's on the one hand, they expect us to work cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. On the other hand, they want us to buy more and more and more. So eventually the system breaks down. But going back to that statistic about um, the top, the 23% of the wealth accumulated in 1% of the, of, of, of the people, the top 1%, that same statistic, the last time it has been that high was back in 1929. And I don't think that's a coincidence. Uh-oh. The last time that happened was right at the, on the eve of the Great Depression. Oh, no. Um, uh, there's a, a guy that I've been reading who talks about the guy who became the chairman of the Federal Reserve, I think, in 1934. And his analysis of the whole cause of the Great Depression, this is one of the bad guys, right? The chairman of the Fed. Right, right? yeah. He's uh, the guy right. who's... He's the guy who, you know, the private and there's no reserves. They're, they're a for-profit corporation run by, the, you know, the Rockefellers and the Morgan interests and, and the Rothschilds. Anyway, this guy said that he believed that the real cause of the Great Depression was this great uh, gap between the rich and the poor, where all the wealth over the past 10 years by deregulating everything and by allowing the free market to just take over and, and run – run wild wealth was sucked up into fewer and fewer hands and see that's that's a good economy simply means that money's flowing things are flowing people are buying and selling trade is increased that's that's a good economy so when you have all the wealth clogged up into the hands of a few people the problem isn't that it's in their hands the problem is that they just can't spend enough to keep it flowing so another way to uh, you know there's a couple of different ways to fix things one way is to take from the rich and give to the poor. That's that's kind of like what uh, the Bush tax cuts were actually very effective because it gave $1,200 into the hands of people who live paycheck to paycheck. Right, and people spend They're that. not going to use that money to take a trip to Europe or to invest in you know stocks and bonds or to put it away for their kid's college. No, the people who got the $1,200 check, they spend it immediately, absolutely. Yeah. Sure, they bought so, groceries, they got caught up in their bills, right. they went and they bought durable goods, they bought that that's new right. washer that was built in America, you know. That's right. But now the rich, on the other hand, you know, when they have all the wealth, it, you know, so there's two ways to kickstart the economy is to redistribute wealth. The other way is to make the rich spend what they have and stop, you know, prevent them from having these stale piles of capital, you know, that are really not doing nothing for the economy here and now. So we should just pass a law that you can't have a savings in excess of a certain amount. And if you do, you have a certain amount of time to go out and spend it. I agree. <laughs> I agree. Now, some people like um, uh, some people would uh, let me take Rick's point of view of this argument that me and Rick had. OK, here. Let me let me let me let me try to emulate Rick here for you. Uh, Rick, man, uh, I hope I don't do you wrong. Uh, OK, I'll be Rick. Peter. uh if you live in America, you have a right to make as much money and save as much money and pile as, up as much money as you want. Don't you have that right? Shouldn't you have that right? <laughs> uh, you know, that's, that's such a, a loaded thing. I mean, I mean, morally, morally, that's just that's, you know, what spirit is that of? It's not. That's not the Holy Spirit. I don't think, you know, we got to be careful. We're not really, we really don't know what Rick would say. I know. I just, I thought I love, I'd... I love Rick, but, 
But, I thought uh, I'd try to throw in a counterpoint yeah, to see yeah. how you bounced <laughs> off of it. You know, and, yeah. since I'm in, I'm in agreement with you, I'd like to throw a counterpoint at you and see if yeah. you see, see how you articulated yeah, that but, one. Yeah, but okay, okay, to, to go after that, not even saying that that's that that's what Rick would say, but uh, oh, I'm saying it because he he said it to me. I got it in an iron show. Oh, uh, <laughs> <no>. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Rick. We'll leave you out of it. Love yeah, you, we need to leave Rick out of it. He's, you know uh, Johnny loves you. <laughs> yeah, I guess you know people have. Well, I don't know. Let me hear, let me give you my argument to that. Mine was sure you got as much you got as you got a right to make as much money as you want and to pile up as much money as you want. But guess what? That's a sin. That is a sin. Jesus did not would not condone that. Yeah. I mean, come on, you can't tell me Jesus would get behind that. Right. You know, right. when we had that argument, and he agreed with me. I mean, he... Yeah. I mean... Yeah, I mean, if... I, The prosperity, the whole prosperity gospel, it's real thin when it comes to scripture. Um, on the other hand, look at all the, uh, the warnings about wealth, about mammon. Um, you know, about all the trouble that it can lead us to. You know, it's, it's, it's a much thicker... Uh, there's a lot more to talk about it from that point of view. One thing, you know, a biblical thing, um, I talk about capul- capitalism with regulation. One thing they used to do is that it was their, you know, Jewish law that you could not, you couldn't harvest the corners of your field. You had a square field, you had to mow it in a circle. Right. And you had to leave all the outer, uh, the, all the, the square that was left over from the circle, you had to leave that for the poor people. Wait, that that's kind of like socialism. I I really don't I really don't think that couldn't be in the Bible. Yeah, they, they, yeah, they weren't allowed to um, harvest the corners of their fields. They that's could, socialism. What are you talking about? That's not no. It's in there. <laughs> it's not. I mean, you, think about it. I mean, no, they got. I, it, you, well, it is. It is a form of socialism. It is. It is well, it's saying, it's, yeah, it's saying that we're going to take from the rich and give to the poor. No, it's that you're going to contribute ten percent of that crop. To the poor people. Yeah. Yeah. That was Jewish law. They could yeah. not harvest the corners of their fields. They had to mow that thing down in a circle yeah. and let the poor people come through and glean what was left over. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing that, you know, I've spent a lot of time trying to, and I have like a whole uh, Word document of just uh, scripture that I've cut and pasted um, that, that uh, really just speaks to, uh, like, for instance, Isaiah and Jeremiah. Uh, especially Jeremiah. Well, actually both. You know, they're both... Yeah. Isaiah is really prophesying to the northern kingdom that's about ready to be turned over to the Assyrians. And it's interesting just what, what the northern kingdom, what their crimes are. You know, what Isaiah accuses them. Why is God angry at you? And he gives a list. And, uh, and then uh, Jeremiah is speaking to the southern kingdom um, of Judah. And he's giving them a list of, of reasons why God is upset. Yeah, the biggest and, one is idolatry. Uh, yes, idolatry is huge. But the other thing is that they're neglect of of the poor. They're neglect of the poor. They're right. neglect neglecting um, widows and orphans. You know, um, it's really uh, you know just their lack of love and compassion that is judged. And even there's this there's this there's just a, a couple of verses that talk about Sodom and Gomorrah, and it says that they weren't judged primarily for their um, for their sexual sins. They were judged. Because of their arrogance, because of their high living, and because they also oppress the poor. Yeah. 
and, and their pride. So it, it's huge. But now the another thing now that I found in here is they're also judged for mistreating the alien among them. Right. They, they that was a huge absolutely. thing. Absolutely. It was huge. And But this is strange because the alien in Israel is a pagan. Right. Probably a pagan criminal. Right. That's been chased out of his own land and has nowhere else to go. And yet God, you know, sees this these people coming into Israel, you know, not having anything, homeless, um, you know, probably probably thieving and stealing and cheating to survive. And yet God judges Israel and Judah and says, I'm holding you accountable for mistreating the alien among you. And yeah, I just and look at the whole I look at the whole uh, alien illegal alien controversy in the United States and I just wonder, you know, could this be something that, that's upsetting to God that there's this whole just huge conservative backlash against illegal aliens. I think it's I think it's uh, just disturbing to God and hurtful to God. And that's that's very controversial, so I'll I'll kind of stop there. Well, now the reason for that, I I know. Let, let me explain God's point of view to you, Pete. <laughs> As if, right? These, yes, uh, Johnny. <laughs> <laughs> what's I, I will what's I will uh, listen now. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> no, go ahead. Uh, um, the the um, the what I get from it, reading through those texts, is that um. I don't know. It doesn't really out, come out right and say it, but it seems to be inferred to me that the people of Israel were God's representatives on earth. And for the Israelites to treat the alien, the foreigners among them, badly was um, God's representatives treating them badly. Therefore, they might have a bad view of God because of God's people, which um, was a huge thing. Uh, and it's it speaks to us as believers that um, we need to be careful how we treat people in the world. Yeah. Well, um, being being the fact that we're a Christian nation, as proven by David Barton, right? Okay. And and by the fact that even Nancy Pelosi and uh, Barack Obama claim to be Christians, right? Right. Um, so, what kind of uh, what kind of obligation do we have as Americans towards these towards these Mexicans who are coming here? I mean, if you really want to go left wing, let's just uh, describe them as uh, as refugees because their economy is worse than ours, and they're doing what they got to do to survive and pay their bills and to move ahead in life. Right. So they're like economic refugees coming here. Right. So what's I our don't... obligation towards them? How are as a Christian nation? How are we supposed to represent Christ towards them? With charity, obviously. That's what, that's what I would think. That's what I would think. Right. And we're like the Israelites yeah. having to treat the, uh, you know, God expecting them to treat, show kindness and mercy to the aliens. You know, uh, an interesting argument that I heard was, uh, you know, the whole social security system is breaking down. Right. Right. And I think this is like the first year where social security outpayments are outpacing Incoming payments from right. payroll, right? And that's because of abortion, but that's another story. Oh, that's true. That's true. And um, yeah, we have killed also, our working force by killing yeah, them when they're we're babies. just aging as a population, right? But the answer to fix that is to, um, you know, if you look at all the third world nations, we're an aging population. We're an older population. We don't have a high birth rate. 
So our population is getting older, and so obviously the the money being paid out to older people is less than the money coming in from people on payrolls who are young. Right. But the third world has opposite demographics. The third world, you know, has high high more uh, uh, low age spans. Um, yeah. And they're yeah. primarily a lot, you know a high birth rate. So it's like they have opposite demographics where they have a lot, a lot, a lot of young people. So one way to save Social Security is to just open the doors wide open to immigration and to allow an influx of young workers to come in and to be put on legal payrolls so that Social Security money can be drawn from them to prop up the system. That's a good point. Since we've killed our workforce yeah. in the womb... Uh, it may be the only answer. It doesn't. Uh, it doesn't. Uh, if now, the, if the now jobs let me just, are there, let me to just tell you the the whole. Uh, are the jobs the, there? The, the, the true beginning? the true biblical answer to Social Security, to the Social Security problem, and to um, and to just socialism in general. You know, as the government gets bigger and bigger and bigger, it's uh, just intruding onto our lives more and more. It's uh, taxing businesses more and more. It's just become – government is be, itself is becoming a bigger and bigger burden. So um, the biblical answer to that and to socialism in general is for, um, for every church to, uh, to just do, a, do an internal audit of its own people and to find out who is on Social Security, find out who is on disability, and then to ask their membership to cancel all of their incoming Social Security and then to uh, – and then to explain to the congregation that they're now expected to take care of those who are worse off than them. And especially the rich people in the congregations. You know, the Bible is very clear yes. that it's up to the rich people to take care of those who are less fortunate. Yes. So all the rich people in church um, can now start to, instead of their third car and their, um, you know, and their, and their vacation house, in the Hamptons or, or whatever, or their vacations to Europe every summer. Instead of doing that, they can actually do what the Bible says and take care of the poor people in, in the house of God. And that is how we solve the problem of socialism. The church is missing a huge amount of its role in society, if you ask Absolutely. me. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and then what that would do is, um, as soon as the poor people got wind of that, church growth would explode yes for the churches that actually did that right but then very quickly you would find out who were the real christians right in the church and all rich hypocrites would suddenly instantly vanish right right and and uh <laughs> they'd be gone they'd be gone they'd be gone so it's, it's purely to, uh... hypothetical it's purely a hypothetical and uh but what that would do is um, it would really uh, show these these hardcore right-wingers who hate government that um, to have a social safety net at the government level actually does make sense to a certain extent. Yes. I've, I'm one of those people who believe in this statement, and that is that uh, America is only as strong as its weakest and poorest member, yeah. citizen. And also of the other statement that it, that is uh, a nation is worthless unless it can't take care of its poor. Yeah, that's these are things that are uh, thoughts maybe 
that are just off in the ether for me, but <laughs> I've heard these I've heard these things uh, said in sermons, and yeah. don't really fall in line with your typical uh, capitalist. You think you think outside the box, Johnny? I'm telling you, man. <laughs> <laughs> You're on the Iron Show now, buddy. I know. You know. I, I know you got your boots on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a lot of things. You know, a lot of the drug problems and uh, other problems are really church matters too, which are have no business being in government. If you ask yeah, me. Yeah. Well, I just uh, I've done a lot of time studying the uh, the philosophical roots of. Of uh, capitalism and and uh, the the classical liberal economists and guys like Adam Smith and uh, the people that followed after him and and really I just think there was a big error that happened way back when uh, Adam Smith kind of uh, glorified selfishness as as something that was good for a uh, good for the economy and and he's right though he's right that uh, that. Greed is an excellent motivator. Greed is an it excellent is. motivator. It is, and uh, and he just put forth this idea of, of of self-interest as the thing that needs to be let loose to allow people to do for themselves. And uh, I just see a lot of uh, I just see where where greed all of a sudden you know avarice was one of the seven deadly sins according to the traditional Catholic Church, right? Right. But. Uh, you know, in the Protestant nations where capitalism took root, it's like this uh, avarice stopped being looked uh, down upon, and and the rich people began to be exalted and looked up to, and uh, and you know, there's a good side and a downside to that. And right now, looking at looking at the fall of global capitalism, looking at the whole system crumbling, I'm just starting to look at the downside to to all the ideology. And the downside is, um, you know, the glorification of selfishness and also the idea of individualism, you know. And people, it's just turned into a system where it's every man for himself. Right. And it's no longer, um, you know, a lot of these um, hardcore free market economists, like uh, particularly the Austro-Libertarians, guys like Ludwig Ludwig von Mises and F.A. Hayek, okay, um, they were very, uh, they're very outspoken anti-Christians, and like like Mises, for instance, um, he would always he would always refer to Christianity as uh, uh, what's the term he used, um, like as, as collectivism, as a oh, a collectivist creed. He referred to it as Christianity was just a collectivist creed because he thought it was too much worried about the community. You know, when you have this too much altruism going on. It kind of shackles people, and it prevents them from going out and doing for themselves all that they can do for themselves. You know, that's the kind of mindset that's kind of uh, kind of snuck in. That altruism is bad. You can see any, is, any extreme was going to be bad, right? Or am well, I wrong? yeah, of course. I mean, you look at the the opposite extreme of, of communism and and socialism. Yeah, but the, the thing is, it's like society used to be so much more. Um, like divided up into all these different things. Like for instance, in the Middle Ages, you had the you know the government was a was a major part of society, but yet on the other hand, the church was a major part of society. And then in the economic field, you would have like the guilds. 
the guilds kind of controlled everything, and they had their own systems of training up people as apprentices and journeymen and, mas- and masters in their trades. And so you had all these um, different areas of society that kind of worked together just to keep things stable. But uh, but then with the, the rise of, of capitalism, what I really see is that uh, the rise of capitalism, the downside to capitalism is is those who are left behind. And the individualism, the wanton individualism. I see where you're going with this. Yeah. Well, and I've been reading people who, who are, who looked at this a hundred years ago, guys like Hilaire Belloc and GK Chesterton. Okay. They were Catholics who lived in England and, um, they really looked at socialism as something that was complementary to capitalism. And they just saw, you know, capitalism was like this runaway freight train that left devastation in its wake. And of course, they're going back to the previous hundred years, and what happened in England with the rise of industrialism and um, the factory workers and the slave child labor and all those kinds of things. You know, all the evils that uh, Charles Dickinson, Dickinson kind of wrote wrote against. You know, they're looking at all of that and they're Please, seeing sir, that look, may I all have these. More? Sorry. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, there's all these. There's all these. There's a, there's a major downside to out of control capitalism and yes. socialism is simply a statist response to the injustices of capitalism okay it's just and so it's not the church picking up the pieces it's not any other sector of society it's the state saying well we're going to use our authority we're going to usurp our authority and we're going to bring justice to the situation by redistributing or by setting up social safety nets and this kind of thing. Somebody has to. Yeah, well, and that's where the and that's when the church the church uh, kind of missed an opportunity to step up where they should have stepped up. But now here's the thing uh, when it gets into my end time stuff is because um Oh cool. Oh, cool. There was a there was a certain laws passed back in England that really threw the door wide open to all kinds of uh, all kinds of bad things happening. And it kind of opened the door for the whole industrial industrialization to the factory workers, um, and it basically gave the capitalists free reign over labor. They were able to take advantage of labor, and so you had all these, uh, you know, terrible conditions in the factories. Children who were crippled from, you know, sitting at the spinning wheel for 12, 16 hours at a time, you know. And these are the things that Dickinson, um, Charles Dickinson, wrote about from a Christian perspective, basically. Um, but there are also, it also created an opportunity for a guy by the name of Karl Marx because he's the one and I haven't really studied Marx and I'm not really interested in it to be honest, um, because I know where he went because, um, he made two terrible mistakes in saying that, um, the problem was property, right? If we just take property out of everybody's hands and put it in the hands of the state, then we can solve the problems. The other thing that he was against was family. He wanted the end of the family structure. So, you know, I, I come across as left wing at times, but don't everybody don't don't anybody ever call me a Marxist because that the the guy was and I even have a book that uh, really talks about his spiritual condition and how it was it was very possible that he was demon possessed and I could I could uh, easily believe that. But the point I'm saying is that uh, the injustices of capitalism create an opportunity for the devil to step in and bring his own solution to the crisis. And that's what happened with Karl Marx. He stepped in and said, look, let's try this. And it was a bunch of bad ideas. 
And from that, you had, you know, you had uh, Lenin and Stalin and Mao and all these things that have obviously not worked. Um, but, uh, but yet socialism, just capitalism itself, leads to an opportunity for the state to step in with greater power and greater authority to say, you can trust us, we'll fix things. Okay? So what I see with, uh, with my work on End Times Babylon, and when I read the book of Revelation, I see line after line, it is describing the whole capitalist system, the global capitalist system that we have right now, today, over the whole world. And I've, and I've looked at, at how capitalism has affected the third world and how, and, I, and really I shouldn't even say capitalism, just how uh, certain radical free market ideologies that have been pushed by the major corporations that work hand-in-hand with the groups like the United Nations, the World Bank, and the World Trade Organization. Okay, imperialism, right? It's a form of imperialism. Yeah, Um, these three things: the World Trade Organization, the IMF, and the World Bank. They're basically fronts for the merchants of the earth, and and the ideology behind the most extreme form of of uh, capitalism, of of free market capitalism, really uh, looks at labor as simply another uh, good to be bought and sold. You know, as a as a cost of production, rather than as human beings who are actually also consumers that depend on higher wages to lift them up. Anyway, it's it's just a whole twisted system. It's a snake eating its own tail for nutrition, and it's all it's all going to fall. But this is my point. Uh, I I truly believe the Antichrist is going to institute something that's very much more totalitarian, right? It's totalitarian. It's communistic. It's redistributive. It's uh, it, to a certain extent, it will be the end result of Karl Marx's vision, is what the Antichrist will, will introduce. But in order for him to have people actually look at what he wants to uh, do through his new world order, there has to be a previous system that, is, that, that, is, that has its own uh, injustices for him to have any sort of credibility. He has so to have I, something I, to solve. Yes, Absolutely. So I believe that, that End Times Babylon is showing us that system. It's a radical, extreme, free market, capitalist, global system. And you just look at how it, all the, you know, and it really seems to point to New York City because it talks about this port city and it talks about all the goods that flow in back and forth and it talks about how when Babylon goes down, the whole uh, shipbuilding industry, you know, the, the, the merchant ships, the, the captains of the ships are going to cry out because their whole source of wealth has just bit the dust. And then it talks about how the merchants of the earth were the world's great men. Babylon's merchants were the world's great men. You know, it's it's really talking about this huge fall of a global capitalist system that is centered on one city. So Which yeah, could I, be New York. I know Patrick Heron really believes that. Oh, really? Yes. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. So I just think I think it's time for Christians, especially in America, to wake up and to take a second look. And you know, this thing that we call fiscal conservatism is actually ultra liberalism. And you look at the most extreme free market ideologies, and you look at these guys, Ludwig von Mises and F. A. Hayek. They didn't. They weren't conservatives. Um, F. A. Hayek wrote a paper when he was at the University of Chicago saying why I am not a conservative. You know, he saw himself uh, following along on the, the whole liberal tradition 
classical liberal tradition, um, which is, of course, where our founding fathers came out of. This ties into the work of Chris Pinto. But, uh, yeah, they were classical classical liberals. And uh, then Ludwig von Mises, he just, there's just a biography that recently came out of uh, von Mises. And the name of the biography is The Last Night of Liberalism, Night with a K. So they look at Mises and Hayek as champions of liberalism. So this thing that we call cons- fiscal conservatism draws directly from their ideas. And it's basically trickle-down economics of blessing the greedy and um, giving labor no leverage whatsoever and, uh, you know, empowering the corporation. And so, uh, you know, Christians got to got to take a step back and look at, you know, even though capitalism has done wonders for us and has, and has uh, made us wealthy and powerful, there's a downside to it. And we got to, we really got to check ourselves and make sure that, uh, you know, Bible says we cannot serve God and mammon. We've got to take our eye off mammon and we've got to get that single eye with the eye salve offered to the church of Laodicea so that we're focused purely on the kingdom of heaven. You know, we really, we want to be able to, uh, you know, see this world as as God sees this world, so that we don't get caught up in distractions and movements and ideologies that are not of God. And I just see, I, I don't see Babylon falling until the day of the Lord, you know, until until just before the rise of the Antichrist. So I think this whole system is going to be propped up right to the end, but uh, we're going to continue to see the, the average working man in America um, you know, we're going to get, it's going to get tougher and tougher. Our wages are going to continue going down and down. I mean, we're, come on, we're competing against uh, a communist nation that has a billion people who are right now have no power to uh, increase their wages to more than $2 a day. Right. We, so, I mean, it's that's harder just it. I mean, and harder to compete it, with them. Yeah, it, it just can't be done. And this is... This is what the free market does. It's, it's you know, the, the CEOs are automatically going to go to the cheapest source of labor. Right. That's just, that's the beauty of the free market. That's <laughs> right. And they can do that. Uh, but um, what happens is, is that America's, America, the American worker is the great consumer. Well, that's, that's absolutely right. And that's what we see in Revelation 17 and 18. It's Babylon is the world's great consumer. That's why all these goods keep flooding in. And I, there's this book that I want to read on, on the shipping industry. I talked to you briefly about this on the phone the other night. Yeah, being a longshoreman, the, I know. Yeah, you being a longshoreman about just the creation of the whole shipping system where you got these huge containers that can instantly be offloaded from these huge container ships onto, um, you know, onto trucks. And Done that. I've been on the ship and I've driven the truck. Actually, yeah. I've got some videos I could show you of me doing both. So, anyway. <laughs> Well, what what really impressed me with you, Johnny, was the story. Um, you're talking about these big shipping companies and how they're very cutthroat and how they treat their workers terribly. Right. Hey, it's boy Johnny here. I'm breaking in uh, during the edit, and uh, I had to uh, delete the story I told Pete about the longshoreman. And uh, they came up to me and told me they didn't want me to release uh, that story. Uh, it was a good story, but um, I'm not authorized to release any stories. Uh, so it's missing. Yeah, we, you know, longshoremen, they, they care about, they care about the poor and oppressed. I mean, 
That's yeah. and that and it came from that. I'm not going to go on and on about longshoremen, but it came from that in San Francisco in the 30s uh, before the union. They they would work longshoremen to death, literally to death. Uh, tens of them, tens and twenties and thirties of them every day would be, would work. They'd work until they dropped dead and they'd be hauled off the dock and replaced. And, uh, so the, so the union formed out of that, out of, uh, so anybody who's been, yeah, anytime there's, I mean, that's perfect, you know, that's a perfect, uh, you know, thing for longshoremen to jump on. Anytime a poor person's being oppressed by their company. Yeah. It's, uh, that's, we won't take that's it. awesome. And that's, that's how things should work. You know, you know, one of the, just one of the things that, uh, you know, the Republican party has always, always supported the businessman, you know, and right. the Democrats right. have traditionally supported the worker and, uh, just the, the whole rise of conservatism and the conservative ideology has really kind of convinced, um, like middle America that, that, uh, work, workers' unions are socialistic and communistic in nature, oh, and oh. that uh, you know it, it really has stirred up kind of anti-union uh, kind of uh, feelings all across the land, and that's just that's one of the reasons why um, you know. And the other thing that they that they do, like right-wing talk radio, it incites um, like the middle class to fight among itself and to blame other members of the middle class, and uh, you know. The, the poor and the desperate and the illegal aliens and and uh, and they're always and anytime someone talks about you know the rich versus poor thing you're always accused of inciting class warfare but but uh, right wing ideology incites warfare in the sense that um, it pits neighbors against each other you know it will it will convince uh, it will try to convince me that I need to despise um, me. Uh, uh, yeah, you that that it works in a longshoreman union, and uh, well, I you know I I've coached little league for a number of years now, and uh, it was like the first year back when my son was in coach pitch. Um, we were on a team with where the where the head coach was a longshoreman, you know, oh, cool. and this was a time when the whole longshoreman issue was uh, in the papers. I don't know if there was a strike or what, but yeah, anyway, we coach. found out that this guy was making bucks an hour. Oh. And and so don't say um, that. It's like, well, oh, you know, it's like, you know, if you find your neighbors making bucks an hour, and then that union goes on strike, you know, that yeah, people well, are going to yeah. take advantage of that and get you fired up and say, what? All he does is unload container ships, and he makes bucks an hour, and I'm and I'm doing such and such job, you know? How dare he go on strike? How dare he demand any sort of, uh, you know, uh, breaks or whatever from the company you know and it goes along with even like teachers union the teachers have been on strike in hawaii and i remember back in that time i think it was late 90s early 2000s um i remember i'd i'd go past uh their their demonstrations and stuff and i'd just be like disgusted with them and i'd be like you know every teacher i know you know they all live in a good house and drive a nice car and my mind was totally poisoned against uh you know these people who I thought you should be satisfied with less, you know? Right. But since that time, I, I believe I've kind of wised up and began to understand. Now Now I, I pretty much do support unions, and, and I don't just support unions um, just to make friends with people, you know, or, or make enemies. I, I, I actually do it because I believe that's what um, we need. We need better, higher-paid jobs 
in in our economy, in our nation, because that is the that is the root problem right now of our economic problems. Is that wealth has been redistributed from the from the bottom to the top, right. from the bottom and from the middle class to the tr- to the top. It's been all sucked up, um, especially in the financial sector, real estate, insurance. You know, it's all these big banking um, guys that have really been able to twist the system, to abuse the free market, to try and just suck up all this wealth into the hands of just the very few. And, uh, and you now, know, naturally, at the end of the last Great Depression, there was a whole bunch of policies instituted by FDR, and I know he's a controversial figure, and he probably overstepped his bounds at a certain time, yeah. but basically, through FDR, the reset button was pushed. Like, we're talking about the year of Jubilee. Right. You know where a reset button was pushed? Right. Well, FDR's New Deal pushed a reset button. Right. And through the years after, like from FDR, for like 25 years after that, from the early 50s to the middle 70s, the rich and the lower classes, their incomes grew, like at the same rate. It's like the rich got richer, but so did the poorer. Right. The poorer got richer. The middle class got richer. Living standards increased. Wages increased. You know, and it kept... It kept going up and up and up until until Reagan, until you had this um, conservative economic kind of backlash. Trickle-down economics. Sudden, and then trickle-down economics, and Reagan you know, went hard against the, the unions, the uh, air traffic controller union, yep. and there was just this whole anti-government backlash, and, uh, and not all of it was unjustified. I'm not going to say that. You know, a lot of what Reagan stood for was good, but uh, but it just historically, that was the point at which things got detached, and we had like two separate economies. We had the Wall Street economy, and we had the Main Street economy, and everything became detached after that point. Now, and, the what was since good that time, for- real wages have actually been stagnant for right. the average working man. Right. We haven't right. got a raise. No. Technically, no. in the past like twenty five years. No, because of inflation. And for and a number of other things, yeah. Right. The division between the um, the lowest paid worker in a corporation and the the scale uh, between him and the CEO used to be something on the order of thirty times. Uh, the, the the floor sweeper in the corporation, the uh, the the CEO would yeah. make about thirty times what the floor sweeper made. Yeah. Now yeah. it's something on the order of three thousand times what the floor sweeper yeah. makes. Yeah, it's it's pretty obscene, and and honestly, I that really, you know, that wouldn't be so bad if if the if the poor were being lifted up, if wages were increasing, right? You know, if and another thing is like um, percentage of income that goes to cover basic necessities, right? Right. Goes to cover health care, housing, and food. Right. Percentage of income that has gone through the roof, especially housing. Yeah. You know? Disposable income. What's that? Gone, yeah, disposable income has yeah. gone way down. Yeah, what is that? I don't have any. Yeah. No, I live paycheck to paycheck. Yeah. Yeah, and now you would think, okay, you would think logically that under this kind of a system that they would end the uh, poor getting poorer and the wage earner uh, not being able to pay his bills and being priced out of the system and not being able to buy durable goods and contribute yes. to the flow of the economy, you would think that I, from, a, from a very logical point of view, you would have that would have to change because yeah. it, the system breaks down at some point. Yeah, the, it just breaks down. I mean, well, look at what's happened right? to the 
to the middle class and to the lower class is that, yeah, we've run out of disposable income. Right. And we've so there goes your economy. There goes your spending. There goes well, your buying a durable but there's goods. All these, there's all these short-term panaceas, okay? Several years ago, um, uh, the interest rates went down and everybody was able to use their, their house as an ATM machine. Right, which I did. You refinance? <laughs> yeah, I, I've refinanced twice since I bought my house. Guilty. Yeah. But I mean, you've got credit cards, you've got um, being able to refinance your house. Okay, but, you but know what, what else did we have? Nothing. Our savings? Yeah, it, we didn't have savings all... because we didn't have disposable income. Right. Right? So now you would think on a logical level they would see so they're this. Running, they're, they're running out of these short-term panaceas. Right. That's the, the problem. That's, yeah. The corporations are running out of these. The bailout the was one, that, failed. Yeah. That didn't work at all. What I was going to say is you would think that you would come to a conclusion, they would come to a conclusion, look, we've got to increase the disposable income of the workforce, blah, 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 blah. Otherwise, we can see it's logical. And even a longshoreman, you know, even yeah. a dock worker like me can see the system just breaks down. And they can see well, that. But it goes back to the beginning of your conversation where obviously they're going to take what they can get and run. Well, that's it. And it's, let it crash. It. Everybody out for himself. It's like all these CEOs, they understand yeah, someone's going to have to get started and paid more money. You know, we're going to have to pay our workers more money. But I'm not going to be the one to do it because right. I got to focus on my the, the my stock prices and I got to make sure I'm pulling a profit and I got to make sure I got a bunch of cash in the bank because I don't know if we're going to be able to, uh, you know, have the next product that's going to sell big. It's it's a very unstable system with a lot of uncertainty. So they're going to make a buck wherever they can and they're going to stash it away and and uh, take the money yeah, and run. Yeah, absolutely. See, so so there, there you have there is what in lies the pro is where the problem is, and that is that uh, the individualism you were talking about. Individualism, yeah. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> me, it's just me. That's all that matters is me, and yeah. forget the country. Forget. Okay, now now imagine yourself standing and giving an account to Jesus for that. Oh, it's going to be rough. That's not going to cut it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I've 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 watched a lot of documentaries on a lot of these corporate scandals, and I've heard a number of times um, CEOs that got busted um, basically just saying, you know, uh, I don't understand what the big deal is because my only moral obligation as a CEO was to was to increase the profits of my stock for my shareholders. Right. They have actually been convinced that their only moral obligation to society is to make money. Right. Right. That's what the system supports, and that's what the system justifies. That is a worship of mammon, a complete sellout. Through and through. And that's that's where the problem is. And that is why why, uh, capitalism needs to be regulated. And regulated with what? And my grandpa would... labor, Labor needs to have a voice, and labor needs to have leverage. Right. I work in a non-union shop. I'm telling you what, they take and take and take, and there's no given. Yeah. There's less and less people to do more and more work, and uh, you can uh, take it or find another job. There is no voice. Period. Nothing. You've got nothing. Well, and they're going to be able to do that because unemployment is rising, and people are more desperate to hold their job. Their abuse of the worker increases proportionally with the uh, unemployment level. Yeah. 
it's it's that it's that race to the bottom that we're that we're into that we're getting into here. So, um, do you see uh, do you see things getting better? Is there any encouragement in all of this? <laughs> I I see things getting better for Christians who are going to trust what the Bible said and what Jesus said. Christians who are going to take their eye off Mammon and focus their single eye on the kingdom of heaven, and who are going to um, just just cut all their ties with this world. I'm not saying they're going to quit their job and be and, and put on you know a robe and carry a sign and, and live in a mud hut. No, I'm just saying that Christians who are going to continue to uh, um, you know take care of their families and fulfill their obligations you know for their family, but who will also um, just listen to the voice of God and and be generous. Christians who can enter this season and go against what the world is telling them, who are going to be able to reach out to other people and lift other people up, because we're, we're heading into a time of amazing opportunity to test the promises of God. And those who do that will find that God is faithful. And those right. who do that are going to be blessed. Yes. And so I think we're going to hear... Um, a lot of testimony from people who are able to do that. And it's not going to be welcomed by a lot of Christians, by those who are not able to do that. But we're just going to trust God and we're going to let him, let him provide. And here's a word for a Christian business owner. You know, your obligation is to keep the business going so that your employees can contribute to the economy. And the more, the better you treat your employees, the more they're going to care about their job and make, and more money they're going to make you. That's right. Right? I mean, that, yeah. any Christian business owner that's listening well, I, right I now. I think, yeah, you're going to see, you know, um, you're going to see Christian owned businesses who are going to go cut against the grain and they're going to, um, they're going to look at their companies as a community of actual people. Thank you. And they're going to, all it's going to take is a little, and and you're going to have the allegiance of people. You're going to have loyalty, and you're going to have honor in your company, and you're going to be a blessing to this world, and you're going to be a light in the darkness. Man, I hope we see that. You know, all it's going to take we'll is a see. few good companies setting the example. And there's going to be a lot of bad companies. <laughs> yeah, but uh, but no, the, the, it's time for the true Christians to rise up. Christian Christian capitalists, you know. Christians who probably disagree with uh, a lot of my left-wing ideas, you know, but but they're gonna they're simply gonna they're simply gonna trust God and they're gonna have compassion for people that work for them. And um, you know, I've been uh, I've I've read all these different anecdotes about different companies, and uh, and one that is a great story is the story of Guinness Beer, huh. and where Guinness was started in Ireland, and uh, and how that company really just became like such a stable force in its community and helped to put people through education and was able to uh, help house people. And, and I haven't even read the book, but I've read articles that have, that have looked at the book. So that's one, that's one case of, of, uh, you know, of good capitalism. Patty um, Heron, are you listening? Yeah. Guinness. <laughs> Guinness. That's right. He calls it mother's I, milk. When I, when I drank beer, I, I loved Guinness. I did. I loved Guinness. It's good, warm, or cold. Um, another another company um, uh, 
you know, of course, the most evil company in the world is Walmart. Oh, man. Um, <laughs> oh, but in comparison to Walmart, terribly. you know, Walmart, Walmart's actually a case that that proves the point that socialism is uh, goes hand in hand with out of control capitalism. Because Walmart is a company of cutting costs, cutting costs, cutting costs, you know, and they they have this idea of where they have their sales associates, right? And they only work on a certain number of hours to avoid all the um, regulation, to avoid having to pay their medical and stuff like that. And I don't know all the particulars, but essentially that's what they try and do. But there was actually an internal memo circulated among Walmart um, explaining to their people, to their workers, how they can apply for welfare. Oh. And how they can apply for food stamps to help them along. Oh. And this is a case of a multi-billion dollar corporation, the biggest in the world, that is creating the that is just re, re, um, reaping in the biggest profits, and yet they're trying to externalize all these costs that they should be legitimately paying, and that and so who pays for it? It's the American taxpayer. That's a perfect example of what you're talking about. Now I see it. Before I was having trouble understanding you. Right there. That's just uh, that's just a case where out of control capitalism is actually empowering socialism, right? It seems unbelievable. They're actually coaching their employees on how to apply for welfare and food stamps. Yeah, yeah. Now, now, in comparison, um, and of course, we know that they're um, the people who own Walmart. I think it's I think the the Walton guy, Sam Walton, he passed away, and it's like his four children that uh, run the company now. Anyway, they're like they're like the top ten wealthiest people in the world. Right. And they're and they're they're Christians. They love the Lord. They vote Republican. They're conservative. They're they're great Christians. Um, in opposition to Walmart, you have this company called Costco. You know, and these four these four kid these four siblings, whatever. You know, they they make multi million dollar salaries every year, billion dollar salaries even. Um, okay, in opposition to that is Costco, whose CEO is a Catholic. Okay. And oh. the the average worker for Costco, the average stock boy, makes twice as much. I think it's um, the lowest paid worker makes sixteen dollars an hour. Wow! And they have excellent health benefits, all kinds of 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 plans that take care of them, and they do not turn their people out and say, you know, go take advantage of this of state programs. They don't do that. The CEO, who's a Catholic, limits his salary to three hundred fifty thousand dollars a year. That's mighty big of him. So, um, so shop at Costco. And yes. Stop shopping at Walmart. Yes. Buy in bulk. You can save a lot of money at Costco. Yeah. I mean, when I mean, you buy, it's not the best. It's better to support, you know, your local mom and pop. Local, yeah. But if you're if you're gonna buy in bulk, don't go to Walmart. Go to Costco. Yes, please, Christians. I don't want to see any Christians at Walmart from now on. <laughs> If I see you in there, I'm going to rebuke you in the name of Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> Our Carpenters Union is demonstrating against Walgreens, right, which is an offshoot of Walmart. What is Walgreens doing? I've, oh, I see the picketers too. Yeah. Um, well, they uh, it's our Carpenters Union, and they're, they're picketing Wal- Walgreens because they have their own um, – they refuse to use union labor, and they have their own group of people who come – I guess worldwide, who who build all their stores, 
So <sighs> boycott Walgreens, boycott Walmart, especially. I quit shopping at Walmart because of uh, 20 years ago. I I heard uh, I read a bunch of stories about how their workers are treated, and I wouldn't contribute. I my wife had tried to go to Walmart a few times, and I blew a fuse. I went out and are you serious? Uh, yeah, I went out and unplugged the distributor wires from her car. <laughs> no, you're serious. You're a hardcore union. Yeah, guy. we wow. don't we don't set foot in Walmart. Yeah, well, my wife bought her computer from Walmart. It oh. was like 300, 350 bucks, and I was there with her. So I, I just repent of that right now. Yes. Sorry. Yes. <laughs> I know, you know, it's it's really tempting to, um, you know, sometimes, you know, and, that, and whose fault is that? That's corporations like Walmart who have taken away our disposable income. And we have we're, we the, we want a computer. We got no choice practically. Yeah. Right. So <laughs> it it feeds the problem. It's kind of a yeah. self. Oh wow! Now you, you got me all upset about Walmart. Now I was in a good mood before you told me that. <laughs> no, look, there's this book that I I still plan on ordering. I just want to read the title to you and the. I haven't ordered it yet, but it's it's in the works. Maybe next paycheck. Okay, it's called, the book is called To Serve God and Walmart, The Making of Christian Free Enterprise. Because the owners of Walmart, they're, they're Christian and, and they sent their, um, they put their workers at the early formation of their company through just really this, uh, a free market kind of, uh, brainwashing, basically, that preached to them the evils of unions, you know. And, uh, let me just read this, okay. The world's largest corporation has grown to prominence in America's Sun Belt, the relatively recent seat of American radical agrarian populism, and amid a feverish antagonism to corporate monopoly. In the spirit of Thomas Frank's What's the Matter with Kansas, which is a great book, this historian unearths the roots of the seeming anomaly of corporate populism in a timely and penetrating analysis that situates the rise of Walmart in a post-war confluence of forces. From federal redistribution of capital favoring the rural South and West to the family values symbolized by Sam Walton's largely white rural female workforce. The new Christian rights, powerful pro-business and countercultural movement of the 70s and 80s and its harnessing of electoral power. Giving Max Weber's Protestant ethics something of a late 20th century update, Morton shows how this confluence wedded Christianity to the free market. Morton's erudition and clear prose elucidate much in the area of recent labor and political history while capturing the centrality of movement cultures in the evolving face of American populism. So it's just a case of of using all this uh, Christian ideology to you know to support Walmart and all their all their policies that's that are out of control right now. You can't name Jesus after that. I'm sorry. You can't name that after Jesus. Yeah. You can't do that's, that. That's uh, it's just a case in point of, of people trying to serve God and mammon and people believing that we have a moral obligation to make money and to do whatever it takes to make money. Right. Right. And now, now going back to the family values, you know, um, conservatives are really big on, on family values, but... You know, uh, as as our society has evolved since the reset button was hit with the New Deal, um, we've seen how our disposable income has gone down. Another thing that we've seen is, you know, in the heyday of the 50s and 60s, it was one income that was able to provide 
for right. a family of four. Yes. One yes. income. A good union job would pay for a stay-at-home mother and pay for a number of kids, get them through college, and even probably give you money to take a good vacation every summer. Yes. You know, yes. And, and to buy that boat, you know, to go to go play on the river on the weekends. Um, that's that's how it used to work. But as things have progressed, um, as the system has evolved, one of the one of the first things that happened is that families realized that no longer would that were they able to survive on one income. Right. And the woman was forced into the workforce. And feminism played a role, and that comes from the liberal side. You know, it I did. can't just can't just blame fiscal conservatism and business here. Um, feminism played a role where, you know, woman being able to bring home a paycheck was was viewed by a lot of people as as liberating, but yet, for the most part, women joined the workforce because they had to. Right. Not as an expression of freedom, not as a way to you know get out from under you know the man, but simply because they had to. And I really think that that's really what has contributed a lot to the breakdown of the family. Yes, I was going to say that. Rise Thank in you. divorce rates and to all these other things. Thank you. It's simply the fact that, that two people have to work full-time to make ends meet. Um, that has happened after the 60s and 70s, which is really uh, what people, sociologists have termed the sibling society, where kids growing up do not have adult role models. Right. And kids look to each other as role models. And it becomes it becomes a sibling society where you don't have good leadership, you don't have a good role model, someone to be an example for you because the dad's always gone, the mom's always gone, you know, and and kids are left to fend for themselves and they're looking to each other um, for advice, which isn't the best thing. Paint a clearer picture of that. What what kind of effects happen from using your brothers and sisters as role models in a sibling society? What is that? What kind of a what kind of effects? Yeah, what kind of yeah, what kind of effects can that project out? Oh, it's just uh, um, you know, it's just a disrespect for elders. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, this whole idea that everyone's a rebel, you know, <laughs> and that was really captured by like corporate advertisement. Right. You know, everything is advertised as buy this product, you'll be a rebel. You know. Right. And it, it just feeds into the, you know, no one. And it, and it feeds into the whole libertarian mindset of don't tell me what to do. You know, Which that's feeds the individualist side of the capitalist yeah, that you're yeah, talking it really, about. It really feeds individualism, yeah. Wow. And it feeds selfishness and self in being self-absorbed. And it's all, it's all you know, I'm going to do what I want to do. I want to express myself, and you have no right to criticize me. And and a whole host of, of other, you know, issues – that's scary, and it doesn't. It just it snowballs. It doesn't get it snowballs. Better. Absolutely snowballs. Yeah. Wow, that's something I have never even considered. The sibling. What do you sibling, call that? The sibling society. The the rise in broken families. The divorce rate. You know the the dads that are never at home. Um, moms that are never at home. You know the the lack of of discipline. All these certain all these kinds of things and. And we can thank the free market to a certain extent for allowing it to happen. Is this new? Have we seen? Has the world seen this before? <sighs> That's a good question. That's uh, 
So I have things coming Isn't, to mind, but maybe Rome. Rome. I mean, yeah, I'm, people a lot of, a lot of times like to compare it to Rome. Right. But uh, Babylon. Babylon. Yes. I, mean, I, I mean, look, I, I've I've got all this stuff on ancient Babylon, and um, the the empire that became uh, Nimrod's empire at that time after the flood. And there's actually archaeological evidence that talk about how um, there was a huge kingdom of Uruk, right? That was Eric right. in the Bible right. in Genesis as the beginning of, of Nimrod's empire. Right. Um, he had a huge global empire. Right. And it was actually based on trade. And I can, I can bring you all these quotes and all these articles that talk. And there's even a book. That has that looks at all these different archaeological digs around the ancient Near East that all tie back to Babylon, and um, really it, it talks about how there was a huge um, merchant component to Nimrod's empire. Well, the Sumerians were huge on yes. merchants. Um, yes, they were Absolutely. huge merchants. We've had tons of archaeological evidence for that. But I'm I'm even going back before ancient Sumer. Um, didn't they become? Didn't Nimrod? Wasn't he? Didn't they become the Sumerians? Or yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But I'm talking like it. Or before writing was even invented, which supposedly um, the ancient texts say that Enmerkar Nimrod was the inventor of writing. Wow. But um, there is all this archaeological evidence of of a huge empire that had merchant. Um, you know, it was it was a merchant based empire. And that's what it was all about. It was all about the, it was all about greed and um, and the pursuit of goods and and mammon. Absolutely, there's there's a huge connection there that I can tie in, and it kind of just shows you how Genesis and Revelation it comes full full circle. That's deep. It comes full circle. Yeah, it is deep, and and I can I, I can do a lot of study and writing on that if I ever get a chance. I would have never thought that your studies on Nimrod would have uh, reached. You know, ties, uh, ties, ties into yeah. into the modern economy. That would have never occurred to me. It's heavy. That's it's a heavy. whole new vein of research for you, or yeah, or is it, is it? Is that something you've always been into, but well, never wrote about? If you actually, if you look at my Giza discovery, the final, the second to last part, I believe, part eight, speaks a little bit about this um, merchant-based empire that Nimrod ruled over. That was based in in Uruk, Eric, in ancient Mesopotamia. And it had connections with Egypt and with India and with Upper Mesopotamia and the Mediterranean Basin. So the Day and, of the Lord is another Tower of Babel. Uh, in a sense, but in this case, um, you know, uh, the Tower of Babel fell at the end of Nimrod's empire. Right. In the Bible, Babylon falls at the beginning of Nimrod's return. Oh, wow. Babylon has to fall. Babylon is the... Uh, you know the thing that he goes up against, saying that look at this, look at these ta- terrible capitalistic excesses. Um, we need an economy that is centrally controlled. We're going to make sure that um, you know the greedy people aren't allowed to run amok, and um, we're going to make sure that every person on the face of the earth gets fed and clothed. That's what the Antichrist is going to say. Oh my God! And he's I... going to be in a position of power to actually make it happen. Correct me if I'm wrong. We have the second, the last Antichrist, the last king, uh, um, providing a solution for the problem he started in the very beginning. Yeah, that's what it seems like. Oh, that's deep. 
yeah, the last Antichrist will will come to power in a, a in populist tidal wave of a reaction against the excesses of global capitalism. Which what is which is what he started in the first place. Yeah, yeah. Oh man, that's a setup. If I ever yeah. even heard one, that's just mean. <laughs> it's diabolical, absolutely. Well, and that's what Satan is. He is. He is. Yeah. Clever and diabolical. That's right. He's the crafty god. That's right. Wow. I shouldn't say god, but it was a reference to a. It's a Sumerian reference to Enki. Yes. Yes. No. I, well, yeah. You're exactly right. It's Enki. The, it was the crafty god worshipped as a god. Right. No, and then these fallen angels are referred referred to as god in, in Psalm as gods in Psalm 82. So. The term Elohim is a technical term that can have many different meanings. Right. Yeah, right. we we don't. So there's, there's only one God that's, that's deserving of worship, but there are many gods. And in Jeremiah 10, it talks about those gods who do not create the heavens and the earth will be destroyed. They will. They will. They were created by God anyway. Yes. So people get hung up on that word God, and you have to really understand what yeah, right. a person's talking about, you know. For one thing, Elohim is just—it's actually a—it's a place name. It's a—it's a, a from where you're from. If you're from the other side, it's talking an, about yeah. You're an Elohim. Yeah, basically, it's talking about yeah, supernatural existing at least in part on a supernatural plane. Right, which is also what we are. That's why people get into that erroneous idea that we're all little gods. We're all gods. When yeah, and that's we're not. Well, that's where John. That's where John G. Lake got into hot water because he um, he makes some statements talking about how we're supposed to be gods on this earth, or that's our true inheritance. Uh, but in a sense, uh, we got to be careful. Um, yeah, we really got to be careful going there. Right. But if you understand the terminology, right. If you understand it, it can make sense um, because even several times in the Book of Exodus. Jesus, uh, God said to Moses, you shall be as a God to Pharaoh. Right. And Aaron will be your authority. Yeah. 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 Aaron will be as your high priest. Yeah. Right. And that, that just goes back. I I really, people misunderstand John D. Lake and think he was getting heretical. And I don't think so if you go deep, but it's, you got to be careful how you bring that up because it just, it just creates a huge stumbling block for, for a lot of people. Right. So it's, not even to, not even to go there. Well, you know, um, like like God, we're a Trinity and all in our all on our own. We're mind, body, and spirit. That's right. Yeah. And um, <clears throat> there is, uh, I want to say, a spark of divinity in us, just because that our first estate is with Jesus, with God in heaven. That's where we truly belong. That's our true home. Well, yeah. I mean, in, and which doesn't mean Jesus, we're gods, but we we're right. more than just flesh. That's right. And mine. You know, the, the, in the book of John, Jesus talks about how, you know, once, uh, once we're saved, once we accept the Holy Spirit, we are in union with God, and the Spirit of God is in us. Yeah, I just want to, yeah, I wanted to make sure we got, re- we, we cleared that up big time. Cause, uh, <laughs> yeah, we're, we're not going Mormon. We're not going Mormon saying that, uh, you know, we're all destined to, uh, be little gods and have our own planet to rule over or whatever. Yeah, right. We don't think we're gods. But um we are we are um very high up in the spiritual uh pecking order. Really. Yeah, I mean we're 
we're, we're, we inhabit that place in the inner circle of God's um, divine council. We're basically replacing the sons of God, which is actually the best term to use. Yeah. We become yeah. sons of God, um, replacing the fallen sons of God who were kicked out, who lost their place in the family of God. In so, fact, yeah, we're, we're right up there. We're seated in heavenly places with Christ. And that makes us pretty special, I mean, to Absolutely. God. Absolutely. And, and we're just starting to understand it. We're, we're just starting to figure out the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant and uh, what, what um, you know, we are the inheritance of Jesus Christ. And God the Father wouldn't give his Son an inheritance that was worthless, or that was small, or that wasn't powerful, you know. That's another good point. We are, we are something special through Christ. Right. And my goal is to find out just how special we are through Christ. How amazing Christ in me can be. You know, how, how, how profoundly, how powerfully can, can I affect this world? How can I impact my community? That's what I want to find out. And how do we do that? We keep pressing in. That's right. Keep That's, stepping out of faith. Keep getting out of the boat and getting out of the box. Keep getting out of the boat like Peter and walking on that water towards Jesus. That's right. That's right. Try and try again. Yep. And we, can't, we can't be afraid of disappointment. We just got to keep getting up and trying again. And we can't let uh, experience dictate our theology. Ah, yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. All right, Johnny. I, my wife's going to come home any minute. All right, man. Now, in the best tradition of the Iron Show, we're going to end the Iron Show with our one, two, three goodbye. Are you ready, Pete? Okay, okay. One, two, three. Goodbye. Goodbye, Johnny. Goodbye, right. Iron Show. Hey, Pete. You still there? Johnny. Can you hear me, Johnny? Later, bro. I couldn't do it. <laughs> you go first. Uh-huh. <laughs>